will be in a small book in the middle of your Bible, Song of Songs, chapter 2. As you turn there, I have a story for you, and it's not like the stories I tell you to get you in here, sorry. But um, <clears throat> It was June 23rd, 2010. I'm sure all of you remember where you were that day. <laughs> it was actually a Wednesday. I had to look it up. Christy had invited me up to her parents' place for some dinner. This is the first picture I have of me and Christy together, July of 2010. Well, we had dinner, and then we headed out for a walk up the draw by her parents' place. And I remember looking at different landmarks. When we get to that fence post, I tell myself, I'm going to bring up our relationship. Should we officially start dating or courting, as it were? Um, Then it was that tree. (laughs) Then it's whenever we turn around and start heading back. (laughs) Then it was that tree again. And then it was that fence post again. And then it was the fire pit. (laughs) It never happened at any of those locations. Yep. We got to the fire pit and we officially, or we, we began having a long discussion. We talked about church, how the Fringe Church may have differed from the Nazarene Church, which I was a part of. We, we talked about futures, what she wanted to do, what, what she was going to school to for, for, and what I wanted to do. And two things clearly emerged. She loves woodland. <laughs> she loves the, the history and the tradition her family has here for generations. And then secondly, what emerged is what does the life of a pastor look like? What could happen... If I felt called to a place I didn't want to go or to a state maybe I didn't like, you know, then I was studying to be a Nazarene pastor and the prospect of pastoring in Woodland didn't even cross the furthest reaches of my mind. Well, with even these two realities seemingly opposite of each other, before I left that night, literally as I was about to to get in the car, (laughs) I finally got the gumption. And uh, somehow I asked her if she and I could consider ourselves a couple. And either unfazed as I was by the results of our conversations, blinded by a little bit of hormones and love, or maybe just not wanting to let me down, or maybe a little bit of all of the above, (laughs) Christy agreed, and, and that was the date we called ourselves a couple. Apparently, and unbeknownst to me, we kind of followed apparently a biblical formula. That evening, I'm sure many couples, at least forward thinking couples, do have these conversations, maybe not using key words. Uh, who are you? Who am I? Where do we want to go in life? Will will we be compatible? A few literary clues cue us into seeing that in our story in Song of Songs, we're actually going to be going to a flashback of likely the courting days of the couple here in Song of Songs. Um, And the end of our study, we're going to have this sort of discussion, and you're probably not going to see it right away, this sort of discussion. But we'll get there. So I invite you in in honor of reading and hearing the Lord's Word to stand one last time. And let's read all this together if you're able to stand. Songs of Songs, chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. We read, the bride is speaking, listen, my love is approaching. Look, here he comes, leaping over the mountains, 
bounding over the hills. My love is like a gazelle or a young stag. See, he is standing behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My love calls to me. And then we hear Solomon. Arise, my darling, come away, my beautiful one. For now the winter is past, the rain has ended and gone away. The blossoms appear in the countryside. The time of singing has come and the turtle dove's cooing is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs. The blossoming vines give off their fragrance. Arise, my darling, come away, my beautiful one. My dove in the clefts of the rock and the crevices of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Then the bride is speaking again. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, for our vineyards are in bloom. My love is mine and I am his. He feeds among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn around, my love, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the divided mountains. Let's pray. Father, now more than ever, especially when we read words in your scripture that makes us sometimes scratch our heads or why is this even in here? What are they talking about? Uh, You included it in your scriptures for a reason. They are here to instruct us. They are here to invite us into understanding how you have created the world, how you have created us. Holy Spirit, we ask for your interpretation of these words. We ask that you would be using them to mold us to be more like your son, Jesus. And to be like Jesus with the ones we love, with our spouse, with our friends and neighbors. Father, you tell us the two greatest commands are to love God and to love people. Help us to do both very well. Father, we ask that you would be the one speaking and not I, and that you would have opened hearts and minds and ears to hear your words and not mine. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Recalling certain events, calling to mind big experiences, seem to be of great importance in the Bible. In the Old Testament, we have people putting up altars. We have the law giving injunctions for the parents to pass on things to their children and their children's children. The councils of old thought it was wise to include four books about the same life, Jesus of Nazareth, four tellings um, about his last week, the Passion Week. We also have the epistles especially Paul's, that seem to retell and focus in on the importance and the weight of what Jesus did at the cross. We have a symbolic telling of Christ's ministry and the ultimate end it brings in Revelation. As I often say, the Bible is about Jesus. Another thing I say sometimes, repeating it from somebody else I heard, is that Christians need the gospel as much as non-Christians do. (laughs) Because there is power Just as we hear three times in the gospel accounts, Jesus tells of his pending suffering to his disciples. There is power in repetition, in calling to mind what he experienced on our behalf. And there is power, weight, and value in calling to mind other experiences for other reasons as well. It's why we often enjoy looking at pictures and photo albums. Home videos. Are any of you history fans? 
Some of my favorite historical episodes are from colonial America. I'm reading a book right now on the Salem witch trials because I wanted to be uplifted after, you know, 2020. (laughs) And my favorite types of history books and movies are the kind that almost can make you feel like you can see the old villages. You can see the the coldness of an unheated house or the descriptions are so good that you can smell and taste things. I just recalled for you an important day for Christy and me. Now, some of you know, in fact, that I'm a writer and And so on Thursday this past week, on long preoccupied Thursday while I was trying to to write this sermon and not think about waiting for a phone call concerning Christy, I opened up an old file on my computer and I surprised myself with the page count. I had written in a 102-page, 12-size font, single-lined collection of memoirs. I started in January of 2012, and I gave it to Christy, completed on our wedding night in July of 2012. And it covered everything from a little bit to before we met, to when we first met, to the night I asked her to be with me, and lots of memories in our relationship. And I think I wrote that down, and, and we write stuff down because it's important to us. Having lived those things, the words seem to bring out those memories more vividly. The sort of idea that starts actually in our story here in Song of Songs. We kind of finished the first major section of Song of Songs last week. It established who the couple was. He's a king, busy. She was a peasant and is aware of who she is in relation to the fact that she's married a king. It ended on a charge the bride gave to a third character in the story, more of a a literary device, the chorus, and her stating to them to not let the love in her to be stirred or awakened until the appropriate time. And then there are a few cues to let us in on the fact that now it seems we're having a flashback. Those cues can be, first and foremost, it's really evident that she's at her home in the mountains and he's coming to visit her and to take her out for a walk. Perhaps Less of a support, maybe more symbolic, but it's springtime. Maybe a visual cue to say this is when love blossomed between these two. This is in the beginning stages. And the bride begins, listen, my love is approaching. Look, here he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My love is like a gazelle or a young stag. Now, I I said this last week, but it bears... Uh, repeating the symbolism or the imagery here is entirely for the reader's benefit, <laughs> not for each character, right? So it's not like, you know, Solomon shows up and the bride attempts to flatter him by saying, you were coming here so fast, you were like a gazelle or a young stag. He'd be just as confused as, oh, thanks, that's nice, I'm going to go somewhere else now. <laughs> the imagery here is this, leaping and bounding, gazelle, young stag, he's hurrying, <laughs> He wants to see her. As I was reading these memoirs to Christy, I laughed as she and I had a saying that I forgot about. Thursday disease. (laughs) What was Thursday disease? Thursday disease was a lot like missing each other, but worse. (laughs) Because we'd see each other on the weekends, and then she'd go back to Moscow on the Sundays, and we'd have these four long days where we wouldn't see each other. So by Thursday, it was unbearable. (laughs) We had Thursday disease. And so the imagery of going over mountains, bounding over hills, he's leading, he's leaping 
over obstacles. As a king, he's pulling strings, he's making plans, he's getting things out of the way to come and see his love. He's committed, he's determined to make a rendezvous with her. We talked about this last week, that when she asked uh, him where he would be uh, working and that if they could meet for lunch, he made plans, he made arrangements. And he's doing the same things here while they apparently were courting. You really didn't have to ask me twice while I was dating Christy if she invited me up on a Friday night. Would I be coming? Well, I guess I could rearrange my busy schedule. I, I did have a sock drawer I wanted to rearrange, but I guess I can do that on a later day. No, sometimes I'd clear my schedule, if that were the case, to go and see Christy. The bride continues, see, he is standing behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. And so here's the clue that it appears the bride here is living at home. And Solomon, in their dating days, has just appeared at their place back in the uh, Lebanon mountainsides. There's a picture of it. He leapt over those mountains, I guess. And uh, if I can just read between or behind the lines, I think what the book is telling us is this. Because on the first part of the book, we had the introduction of the couple, and now here we have this slight story of their their courting days, and in the next chapters it's going to be a little bit sad, a little bit dark. And I feel the Holy Spirit, Solomon, and the book are all saying this, is, is keep this alive. Recall these things, right? When did you and your spouse meet? What are some of the favorite memories of your time together? Do you recall the time you made it an official as a couple? Was it a bit more gallant than my attempts? Not too hard. (laughs) And so reflections can lead to resurrections. Just as, as we absolutely, Christian, need to hear the gospel, so we as couples at times need to recall these moments. They can be coals at the bottom of a fire, and remembering them can be blowing those coals. <laughs> Reflections can lead to resurrections. The bride continues, <clears throat> My love uh, calls to me, and now we hear the King Solomon speaking, Arise, my darling, come away, my beautiful one, for now the winter is past, the rain has ended and gone away, the blossoms appear in the countryside, the time of singing has come. And the turtle dove's cooing is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs. The blossoming vines give off their fragrance. Arise, my darling, come away, my beautiful one. Think Shakespeare again. (laughs) Sometimes we need about five lines to just say, hey, it's springtime now, let's take a walk. (laughs) And because that sounds a little bit less exciting, we had to put it out this way. But it does go a bit deeper than that. Uh, As I said, too, This could be some subtle imagery also to suggest that we're looking at the springtime of their relationship, their courting days. Springtime is classic imagery that's usually romantic and provocative. It's warmer. The flowers smell good. I'm sure they had prom back in those days too. No, probably not. But also he's calling her my darling. And other translations just use love. I like that because darling... To me, it sounds like this was written in the South. <laughs> in any case, uh, my, also, my beautiful one. Psychologists say, and since they're so gospel-centered, that you only give nicknames to people you really love. 
Do you have a nickname for your mate? I do. Mine is Love or Queen or Miss Perfect. It doesn't really go to her head. But Solomon wants to go on a walk with her. He says, My dove, a symbol of purity and innocence, in the clefts of the rock and the crevices of the cliff. This might be, again, reference to where she lives, the Lebanon mountainside. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. He likes to be around her. (laughs) He wants her presence. The sound of her voice is sweet. How she looks to him is pleasing. He likes her. Now, one of my commentaries suggested that what was... This was actually happening while Solomon and the bride were already married. And I've told you Song of Solomon has millions of interpretations. So maybe she's staying at her home for other reasons, and he's coming to beckon her out to do a little bit more than just the walk. That's why there's all the spring imagery. I don't know. I'm more inclined to believe it how I present to you, just a walk, because she likes her presence. Two quick applications. One for couples, and then one more generally. Couples, I'm giving you homework this week. Take a walk. (laughs) On a relatively warmer day, I just challenge you to take a walk. You might say, I can't walk that far. Make it the longest trip to the end of your driveway ever. Take a walk and enjoy each other's companies. Hold hands if you feel like it. Maybe talk about when you first met. Remember how you met. Do you remember your mutual friends? Were there mutual friends? Just take a walk this week. Now, I know if you've been out of practice and you wonder how to bring it up to do something that you don't normally do, I got a line for you guys. Just ask her, you want to work on homework this week? (laughs) Pastor gave us some homework. There you go. You're welcome. Second application, very romantic, yes. Don't underestimate the ministry of presence. Just presence. I loved it. Last Wednesday, Christy and I had an emotional day in Lewiston, all the tests done, sending off a biopsy to the lab. We... Tried to enjoy a good evening, but I had a meeting on Thursday at a sermon to continue writing. What happens? One of Christie's friends from town comes up and spends the first half of the day with her. Why? There's just a ministry to presence. Don't underestimate that. I don't know what I'd say if I call that person up that God's told me to call or invest in their lives more. Ask them if they like card games. (laughs) Do they watch, want to watch a movie? Do they want to catch a meal? Do they just want to come over for some coffee, tea, cookies, something to drink? Couples, take a walk. Secondly, everyone, whether you're married or single, don't underestimate how God might use you to minister simply by being present with someone. Just enjoy being with people. What about the winger that the bride begins to say? Maybe they're talking as they're going for a walk, and the bride brings this up in the usual cryptic Shakespearean fashion. Catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that ruin the vineyard, for our vineyards are in bloom. Okay, will do, honey. (laughs) Nehemiah 4.3, Ezekiel 13.4, in fact, lots of places in Jeremiah are references to jackals. And these aren't good symbols in the Bible, jackals and foxes. In fact, there's usually uh, problem makers. Jesus even referred to Herod as that fox in Luke 13.32. It seems, biblically speaking, in Hebraic culture, that foxes are referred to as villains or problems or pests or disruptors, hindrances. 
And it seems the bride is saying this, that in light of their love, she wants Solomon to catch the foxes that ruin the vineyards. The vineyards are in bloom. Their love is blossoming. See, this is kind of the fireside chat that I had with Christy in some ways, right? Will there be problems when our compatibility doesn't line up? What can we do about that? And here's what I fear, and here's what I'm guilty of too. A lot of us are good fox siders, just not fox catchers, right? We're especially good fox siders if those foxes represent problems originating from what we perceive to be them and not us. This jumped out at me too in this verse. Notice the, the bride says, catch the foxes for us. Not the foxes you see, and I'll catch the foxes I see. But she tells the husband to catch it for us. And I was reminded of Adam and Eve, actually. You could say Eve sent a proverbial fox into the marriage. <laughs> it was a big fox. It kind of messed it up for the rest of the family. We're still seeing the results of that. But we don't hear about the fall of Eve or Eve's sin so much as we talk about the federal headship of Adam, the fall of Adam, inheriting the sin of Adam. Why? Because Adam should have caught the fox. God told Adam in the first place, don't take that fruit. But Adam watched his wife do it, failing to protect her. Adam participated with her, didn't want to be the one to ruin the fun. And though he passed the blame... God came to him. It's his responsibility. What am I saying? Women have no responsibility to catch the foxes? No. No responsibility to repent of sin or call out sin? I'm not saying that. But I think we can say biblically that men need to be able to bear the burdens more so than the women. Men need to shoulder the load, the weight, and do so like Jesus does it. I know a lot of men who are doing their best to bear their load, but because they're human and sinful, they're taking it out on family and it's not doing anyone good. Jesus shoulders us at the cross and He never condemned us for it. He had authority to lay His life down and authority to take it up again. And not once on the cross, not once after the cross, did He ever look humanity in the eye and said, Do you see what you did? Do you see what I had to go through for you? No, Jesus bore it. So, men, how to catch the foxes? And I think the second emphasis is telling. The women said, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards. Some of you maybe have proverbial wolves in the house right now, never mind the foxes in the vineyard. Sometimes, a lot of the little foxes that can be caught will mean they'll never make it into the house. <laughs> so, little things, nip things in the bud... Are you saying things underneath your breath? Release that and surrender that to God immediately now before those little things become big things in your mind and truly control what you feel about the relationship. Are you doing habits behind closed doors? Watching things you shouldn't? Reading things you shouldn't? Get help. Go the uncomfortable route to nip that in the bud before it's completely put a wedge in the marriage, notwithstanding the wedge it makes now. You have some resentment? Talk to God about that. Really talk to God about that. God, is this resentment right? I can give you a guess what He might say. Is this true? Is this healthy? Do I need to talk to my spouse about this? 
Or is this selfish and petty and is it time for me to give it up? I love how simple the symbolism can be to understand. I'm not saying the objectives required to catch those foxes are always simple. But think about this. A vineyard with less foxes mean it's going to bloom. I think a lot of folks think this. If problems A, B, and C were out of my marriage, then it'd be good for me. And the truth is, is it would be better. It would be better than good for you. I mean it. I think couples often disillusioned in the middle of pain and resentment forget that love only gets better. I heard a statistic that most long-term couples report their best years after the first ten. After the first ten. Maybe you couples who've had long lives together can testify to that. I, young, tended to think that a lot of the fire in the first year was pretty good, but no, the fire can only get better and hotter. Why? I think nothing touches the soul to know that whenever you've sinned against another sinner for so long and they're still coming back to you, (laughs) it speaks a whole lot more to the soul than chocolate, jewelry, and teddy bears can. Although chocolate jewelry and teddy bears are still appreciated, I know. Sin's going to happen. In a marriage between two sinners, sin is going to happen. Sometimes big sins, sometimes hurtful sins. Don't let the foxes ravage the vineyard, though. This is the Holy Spirit through the bride in the book saying, Jesus says, I've died for all sins. Every single sin I died for. What they did to hurt you, I died for that sin. And I love that sinner. (laughs) And I love you. And through Christ, there is always forgiveness. Through Christ, there is always hope. Through Christ, there is always redemption to not just get to good, but get to flourishing. Because when the foxes are out of the vineyard, the vineyard grows and it flourishes. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe in redemption, then you have to believe in this. That the proverbial foxes should be caught. And men, it falls to you primarily to shoulder this. To love your wife as Christ loves the church. Christ is the one who pursues. Christ is the one who remains faithful. Christ is the one who forgives 70 times 7. And unlike Christ, men, sometimes you and I are the ones releasing foxes. And we need to man up and humble ourselves here too to seek forgiveness, to seek to make it better, to seek God's forgiveness and the Holy Spirit's power to be the men that we should be. Now, the Bible, I know, leaves room for divorce. But the Bible also leaves room for hope and redemption in all situations. Some of you are married to a different spouse, a second, a third marriage. I get it. I'm not judging. I'm just speaking into your situation now. In Christ lies the power, not just for a good enough marriage, but a flourishing and lifelong marriage. That's what Christ offers. The bride, our main character, and true to form ladies, the one who's most talking, (laughs) finishes our study today as we end chapter 2. She starts again. My love is mine, and I am his. Last week, I I mentioned earlier, 
I mentioned this earlier today as well, that she brought up a charge to the chorus to not let love awaken until the appropriate time. And I said that that was uh, just one verse of three bookmarks in the book. She says that three times throughout the book. She also says this line right here in a similar fashion. My love is mine and I am his. This phrase kind of returns two more times after this in the book. But it changes slightly each time and it kind of marks for us a deepening of love between these two. And if you're interested, the other two parts are in Song 6.3 and 7.10. But you might say here, though, it seems pretty deep. My love is mine and I am his. That seems pretty deep. And if this is in their courting days, as I think it is, it's very telling. Even if it's supposed to be uh, to believe that this is the beginning of them two being married, it's relatively early on in the story. And this sort of commitment to one another is telling. See, this is how we begin our relationships. Commitment, loyalty, and solid. I remember telling everyone, of course, after Christy and I got engaged, and there was a mutual friend of ours that I worked with at Cloninger's grocery store, and I, uh, and there were, um, Chris, Christy went to school with this gal, and I went to work with her, and she knew I'd been dating Christy, and so I tell her that Christy and I are getting married, and this gal asked me, oh, have you two been living together? No, I answer. Are you moving in together, at least before you get married? <laughs> no. I answer again. And she's kind of taken back. Now, what I find interesting is that 30, 40 years ago, not living together before you got married was expected. But now it's the other way around. But we know the reasons why it's presented. It's what this gal told me. Kevin, what if there's some major incompatibility you never thought of that would only show itself once you two live together? And she gave me a host of ideas. What the bottom line is this is, well, I proposed engagement to her because... I choose to be committed to her. <laughs> See, our, our love is a lot like the gospel. It's as if Paul said somewhere, or excuse me, I don't know where I was going with that. But the gospel is predicated on nothing else but God's love and loyalty, not our performance. So we enter the marriage relationship, I'm sure, I'm sure, certainly drawn by romantic attraction and whatnot, but in large part our commitment is not based on, well, after a trial period, the good outweighed the bad, and you scored high on this, you could do better on that, we'll work on it, but I think I'm in. <laughs> no, that's, that's not how it works. <laughs> you tell me what's better and more secure of a relationship. One where the other is committed insofar as your performance or one where the other is committed before they ever considered your performance. I mean, the gal in the store was right on some, on, on some points. I had dated Christy for a year and a half before I proposed marriage. We had spent a lot of time together, but not every moment. I didn't know all of her routines. I didn't, we didn't know each other's quirks. And I joke with her that as long as I just keep the drugs slipped to her, she's, she's with me for life. So, no, but I, I was and I am first foremost, utmost, preeminently committed. That's my foundation. Covenant loyalty, commitment. Just as there is freedom in love before God that He loves me first. Do you know that freedom? 1 John 4.18 There is no fear 
in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. I obey Christ. I move about freely and with ease in my walk with him because he loved me so much that he died for me to forgive me. He loved me first. So in a marriage, you're mine, I'm yours, end of story, no strings attached, no contingencies, no matter what, you have my heart. That makes for a marriage with a lot of freedom and room to flourish. My love is mine and I am his, the bride says, and then reintroduces a topic from last week. He feeds among the lilies. You remember what that was a picture of? She asked in song 1-7, Tell me, you whom I love, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? This was the Shakespearean word image way of asking, where do you work when's break time? The idea here, too, then, could be in Song 2.16, is she is stating a commitment in light of his busyness, in light of his life, that he's a shepherd over Israel. My love is mine and I am his, even though he feeds his sheep among the lilies. Right, So he is someone who is busy in the world. I won't get a lot of time with him, but he's still mine. Verse 17, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, turn around, my love, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the divided mountains. Again, if this is the courting days or if maybe they're married and they're just spending some time in a country getaway, the bride is basically saying this, after work, return home to me. Before the day ends, return to me. She's sharing him with the world, but he's hers. They belong to each other. Love has problems. It has its share of problems. It has foxes. When the Bible first presents love, we hear this is why. Oh, did I already go to Genesis? I think I. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Genesis 2.24 says this. There, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Getting two sinners into one flesh will make problems. When all of that one flesh has in its whole are two sinners in part, there's going to be problems. Sinners are selfish people, but at the end of the day, Jesus died so love and marriage can be possible. Furthermore, Jesus set up the perfect formula, if you want to use it that way, for us to follow and how to operate in marriage. He does it not based on performance. <laughs> This is the gospel. This is what uh, the self-righteous religious people found so offensive. What do you mean it's not about what I do? (laughs) But it's about what God does to save me. I could open up a Bible and say, I follow most of these laws. Can you cut me slack on the ones I don't follow? He says, no, but I got a better solution. (laughs) I'll live the perfect life. I'll die for the sins you commit. And I'll give you my righteousness by means of my spirit And show God my righteousness in place of your disobedience. Your love for your spouse and your love for all people should originate in God and not in them. Your love is not a reaction, but an action. You love them so you pursue them instead of their pursuing you. And then you finally love them back. God is sacrificially forgiving. He forgives so much it hurts. Quite literally to forgive us, his son had to pay the price. That's our standard in marriage. Forgive so much it hurts. And truly forgive 
truly love, truly say, you hurt me, I forgive you, and I want to remain open to you. I want to be just as vulnerable and loving to you as before because we're in this marriage together. Now, don't be dumb. Don't be stupid, of course. If you know that they take advantage of that, by all means, exercise caution. But spouse, let me just say, if they can sacrificially forgive and be vulnerable for you, you would have to be really cold to take advantage of that. (laughs) By the grace of God, respond in kind. Commitment does not start when they've proven themselves. Commitment starts back in the proverbial mountains while he's on his way to her. It starts from the outside looking in. I love this picture of the baptism of Jesus. Jesus shows up on the scene in the book of Mark and in some ways in the book of John. It's really the first story we have of Jesus. What does God say? You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't done a thing yet. Do you love your spouse like that? Let's pray. Father, um, your word tells us that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You tell husbands through Paul to, for men to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Sometimes we take advantage of your grace, we take advantage of your forgiveness, but like the story you tell, do we go and hold over others' unforgiveness? Father, are we cold and callous to others while we expect you to be open all the time to us and warm? Father, for marriages that are dealing with foxes, as it were, would you give them the grace, first of all, to be like Jesus to one another, to be forgiving? Your word also tells us that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, may we not condemn our spouses. May we not condemn even those we love, our neighbors, our friends, and family, but may we be like Jesus to other people. Father, for those who are wrestling with foxes in the vineyard, would you give them the grace and the wisdom to catch those foxes and put them out? Father, would you bring healing to relationships that are broken? Father, we also pray that you would help us to practice the ministry of presence. Those neighbors, friends, family, co-workers, people that you've been laying on our hearts to talk to, to spend time with, give us the grace to be obedient to what you would call us to do and, and to minister to them through presence. To invite them over, to have them over for a meal, have them over for anything, take them out for lunch, take them out on a day, for, take them out on a date, even a platonic one. Father, however you're speaking to us, all I pray for is the mercy for us to be obedient, that you would have opened up our hearts and minds to warm to the words you have spoken to us and help us to respond accordingly. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Father, I also want to lift up to you and thank you, I should say, for those who have prepared food today, for our food downstairs. We pray that as we get together and eat it, that you would nourish our bodies with it. That you would bless our fellowship and time together. We would have good conversations that you would be meeting with us in the middle of all of it. And we thank you for that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed to go downstairs if you want to. But not until the bell is rung can you eat. (laughs) Thank Thank you.